Good morning, everyone. When uh, Pastor Roman asked me to uh, fill the pulpit for a few weeks, uh, we tossed about, talked about some things that uh, I might speak on. One of them was uh, maybe to cover a couple of the sessions that, that uh, didn't get uh, record, make it onto the uh, videotape properly. And uh, I thought it would be that too much ground had been missed there for me to be able to cover it in, in just one or two sessions. But we have been studying uh, through the book of Hebrews on our, at our Friday night Bible study, going through it verse by verse. And the central issue with the author's intent in writing to the Hebrews was that they were struggling with the concept of Jesus, not as the Messiah, but that his revelation was superior to that of angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. And that is essentially the track that the author of Hebrews moves through as he moves through the book of Hebrews. So there were two predominant Messianic Jewish communities around this time. There were the Palestinian Jews who were located in and around the region of Palestine who tended to be more conservative, more orthodox, and uh, a more, they, they were a poorer class of Messianic Jews. And then there were the Jews of the diaspora or the 10 cities scattered about Asia Minor. And most of those Jews had been thoroughly Hellenized and so they were more open to Hellenistic ideas and they tended to be more affluent. It is to this community, the Hellenistic Jews, uh, and their struggle with the concept of Jesus whose revelation would be higher than that of angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood would be written to. So part of the, part of, if you, if you were to read through Hebrews chapter 1, you'll notice that right away it launches into a discussion of how Jesus is God and man, and that he is superior to the angels. And we are... Uh, we, we looked at that in our Bible study and uh, we came up with some interesting things that not everybody might be aware of, but that on Mount Sinai, the law was delivered from God through the mediation of angels to Moses and then to the Jews. And it can be, it can be a struggle for, for Jews of that time period to accept the fact that Jesus as a man his revelation was higher than that of angels because after all, consider that angels appeared to Abraham, they appeared to Isaac, they appeared to Jacob, they appeared to Hagar, and as I just said a minute ago, they also appeared on Mount Sinai. We read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? So here now, there is a specific reference to the law that was given on Mount Sinai. We know it as Ten Commandments, but in fact, there were 613 of them. But Paul goes on and says this, It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And here is the part that I want you to, to pick up on. And it was appointed through angels. You see there, there is a plurality of angels there by the hand of a, medi of a mediator. So the author makes his case here by contrasting the person, work, and revelation of Christ 
by constantly referring back to Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament to us, but historical events to them that they, as Jews, would all be very familiar with. And so we've been studying this, and as he moves through the book of Hebrews, there are five predominant warnings that come through the text. In our study thus far on Friday nights, we've covered two of them. But I want to focus this study and the subsequent two sessions around the first warning. So we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must give yep. the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And so I'm basing this study off of this concept that there is a heavy price to pay in neglecting this great gift of salvation that has been bestowed upon us. And what I mean by neglecting, I, I'm not referring to rejecting this great gift of salvation, but not, not appropriating its value, its function, and its purpose in our life to the primary status that it should be. And this is a problem. This, is, this was a problem with the Hellenistic Jews. It was a problem with the Palestinian Jews. And it is most certainly a problem with the church, most especially in our time. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now I want to do this by looking, following this trajectory. One, establishing the fact that God loves the nation of Israel above all other nations. And number two, I want to take us through two primary or three primary events in the history of Israel that will demonstrate the severe consequences that God's people, the one whom he, the nation that he loves more than anyone else, the consequences that came upon them for trifling and neglecting the law that was mediated through angels to them. So we're going to make a survey of major events and moments in God's expression of love for Israel. That in spite of God's great love for Israel, the consequences that came upon them as a result of violating the law which was mediated through angels and through Moses to them, and those consequences were very severe. But as we go through this, there'll be unspoken questions that arise that, that will cause us to wonder, well, if, if God loved this people so much, why would he not only allow but ordain these things to happen to them? And questions that we will answer as we move through this. So the first thing I want to look at and establish is the Bible establishes God's great love for the nation of Israel. We read in Genesis chapter 12 verse, in verse 1 and following, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this we all know is the is the beginning point of what is known as the Abrahamic Covenant. It is a unilateral or suzerainian covenant. It is a covenant in which God promises to do something for Israel and his descendants in spite, uh, without any conditions or obligations on their part. Now, this covenant was reiterated by God to both Isaac and Jacob. But there is a passage in Scripture that really gives a a poetic uh, description of God's love for Israel under under a metaphor. And so that's found in Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, I'm going to try and update this a little bit for us. So so as I read these passages out of uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, I want you to picture... Uh, one of two things or both. A baby that has just been born, the umbilical cord is cut and it's left on the table to die or thrown into a dumpster as, as something that is unloved. Those are things which happen today. Or think of it in this way. As a, as a baby that has been aborted, but has come out living as something that is not wanted, not desired. I want you to picture this as I read through this passage, and you'll get a real, a real pictorial sense of the great love that God has for the nation of Israel. We read in Ezekiel chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father and your Amorite uh, was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Those are, those are euphemistic terms for pagans. So they were both pagan nations. And so as, as God is delivering this message through the prophet Ezekiel, He's telling them, look, you were, you, you, your point of origin is no different than any other point of origin of the peoples of the earth. You come from a pagan background, a, 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 an idolatrous population of fallen race. On, in verse 4, he goes on and says, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. So the navel cord was not cut. That is to say it was torn and not cut. Uh, The placental sac was not removed from the infant's body. They were not rubbed with salt, which was something that they used to firm up the skin of a newborn child, and they weren't wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
Verse 5 says, No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. You starting to get the picture? And when I passed by you, that's God, and saw you struggling in your own blood, that is to say that the, the newborn infant was, was beginning to die, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered, you, covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord. You get it? You see it? You see God's great love so poetically and graphically expressed there in Ezekiel chapter 16? So, what I want to do now is I want to take a look at a couple of major events in the timeline of this nation, in the timeline of this people that God through the prophet Ezekiel uh, uh, represents as a newborn child that was hated, that nobody wanted, that was tossed out into the open field, to die, left to die, and that he took in, he nurtured it back to life, he clothed and fed it and grew her to maturity and he took her as his wife to see what we can see. The first one, the first event that I want to look at is the event where Joseph goes into Egypt as a slave. But first we have to talk a little bit about history. So at the time of Joseph, there was there were this dynasty that ruled from the 13th to the 17th dynasty. They were known as the Hyksos people. Now the Hyksos people were not native Egyptians. They were Semites. So when I say Semites, you know that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Hyksos were Semites, whereas the Egyptians were Hamites. The, the uh, Hyksos ruled from the 13th to the 17th generation. The Hyksos conquered the Egyptians in 1670 BC. 
As I said, they were Semites. So while they ruled Egypt, they themselves were not Egyptian. Naturally, the Egyptian population hated the Hyksos conquerors and hated all of the Semites in general. And it could be said that Egypt is the first anti-Semitic group of people. The Hyksos, however, because they were vastly outnumbered in the land of Egypt, were always welcoming to other Semitic groups to come in and to emigrate into the nation of Egypt, thus strengthening their position against the native population of Egyptians. Joseph was brought into Egypt as a slave during the 16th dynasty. Now this helps us to understand how it is that Joseph rose to prominence so quickly in the house of Pharaoh during this time. When Pharaoh learned, and then when Pharaoh learned that Joseph had more family in the land of Canaan, Pharaoh immediately welcomed them to come and immigrate to Egypt. But Joseph knew that native Egyptians would not have received his family warmly. So he suggests to Pharaoh with a reason under the providence of God that he allow them come to come in and then move them over to the land of Goshen. We read about this in Genesis chapter 46, verses 28 to 34. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel, and he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even until now, both we and all of our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so under the providence of God, Joseph suggests to Pharaoh that, they, that his family be moved to the land of Goshen and that they would present themselves as shepherds and herders because they were considered to be outcasts by the native Egyptian population. And so Joseph and his family are relocated to the land of Goshen, which was which was isolated from the, uh, from the main centers of Egyptian population. Okay, so there they were, they, they grew, they prospered, uh, and, and they increased. But eventually, the Hyksos reign came to an end. They were overthrown. And that's where we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So the 17th dynasty was overthrown by an Egyptian called Akmos. 
He came to power in 1570 BC, and he was a native Egyptian, a Hamite, a son of Ham, who restored Egyptian rule to Egypt. This was the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. He was ignorant of Joseph and all he had accomplished because he came from a different family line or a different dynasty. And what he did is he embarked on a, on a program of deportation where he began to, uh, to, to deport the population of Semites that were located in the land of Egypt. Those he could not deport, he enslaved. And so this is what happened to the, the descendants of Joseph, mind you, who in a few generations had grown from 70 to several million. We read in Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, he said to this people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So his plan, a threefold plan which he started and his father and his son continued, was in order to control the population, his way of dealing wisely. The first thing he did was he enslaved the people. Naturally, when you enslave a people, you put them on the hardship, and you would expect that their population would decrease rather than increase. But because God's hand is involved in this, and because God loves this people, he uses this as an opportunity to increase them. We read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. So he enslaved them, and they grew instead of contracted. 25 years later, Ahimnotep I, who was the son of Akmas, came up with a different way, or initiated phase two, which was to counsel the Hebrew midwives when a Jewish male child was born that they were to kill that child. We read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 16, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Obviously, this plan failed and didn't work because the Hebrew midwives refused to comply and made up the story. Well, they are so lively they essentially pop them out like cookies out of the oven. By the time we get there, these kids are already born. So that plan failed. Then Amenhotep I comes up or initiates the third phase of the plan to control the Jewish population, was now he enlisted every Egyptian person who had any contact with a Hebrew male child to take that male child and throw it into the Nile River as a sacrifice to the Nile God. The Egyptians worshipped some 80 some odd gods and the Nile God was one of them. So these were the three ways that the Pharaoh Akmos configured in his mind 
to deal with this population of Jewish people who were Semites in the land of Egypt, enslave them, decrease the population that way. That didn't work. Enlist the Hebrew midwives to kill the male child when they were born. And if when those male children would be killed, then what would eventually happen is the, the Jewish women would intermarry with the Egyptian men, thereby watering down uh, the line of Judah. And we'll come to why that's important in a minute. And then finally, an offering to the Nile God. So the threefold plan failed miserably. But it's time for some questions that naturally present themselves. If God loves Israel so much, and he does, then why would he move them out of the land of Canaan, which had been given to them in the Abrahamic covenant, to a foreign land? Why would he do that? He gave them the land. Why move them out of the land of Canaan and into Egypt? The answer to that actually comes from going way back into the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9. So we know the story after the flood that Noah had too much to drink one night and he went into his tent and he was naked and sometime while he was sleeping, his son Ham came in and looked upon his nakedness and then went out and, and told his brothers. When Noah found out about it, you'll notice he didn't say, cursed be Ham, but he said, cursed be Canaan. So he put the curse down, not on Ham, but on his son and on his descendants. Now, to understand, we don't understand the value or, or actually what that means in, in our culture. What it meant in that culture was that if you were cursed, then you would be doomed to destruction. There was no way back from it. That curse was pronounced as a curse from God upon Canaan, who was the son of Ham and all his descendants. Okay, so what happened? Well, why did this become an issue? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 and 2, it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So the line of Canaan had been cursed. So God moved the Jews into the plush land of Goshen to prosper them and increase them to the population strength that they would need to carry out the curse of God upon the people of Canaan, upon the people of the land of Canaan. But it's also important to remember that the Messiah was to come from the line of Judah. And if God had allowed them to remain in the land of Canaan for those 400 years, what would have happened? What do you think would have happened? That line would have been completely watered down and the messianic line would have been corrupted, 
would have been genetically corrupted with a people who had been cursed by God. Kind of the same thing that happened before the flood, isn't it? So God takes these people and moves them out of that land into a plush land in Egypt where they would grow. As I said a few minutes ago, they grew from 70 to over several million. I think the estimate is at the time of the Exodus, they numbered some 5 million people. So God put them there to grow them in a prosperous place, isolated. They would be kind of like some of the, uh, maybe the Amish or the Mennonites who, who have their own, their own compounds, their own areas in which they live. God moved them there to grow them and to keep them separate from the idolatry of the nations all around them. But he also had to move them there to preserve the line of Judah because it would be through the line of Judah that the Messiah would come. But another question. Why would God allow, and I thought about this, why would God allow the dynasty that was friendly to Joseph and his family, the Hyksos dynasty, to be overthrown by a dynasty that would persecute and enslave the nation that he loved so much. Why would God do that? Why would he not just allow them to remain, the Hyksos to remain in power, and they could still grow through a mighty nation and do what God would have for them to do? Well, the answer to that, I think we've read, but I'll read it again, comes in Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The reality is, and it is true, it was true for them, and it's been true for God's people of all time, that God's people most, most often prosper under oppression and under persecution, not when times are good or the going is easy. There is an inverse ratio at work there. So God caused the Hyksos Empire to be overthrown because it was, would be under the persecution of the Egyptian pharaohs that the Israelites would go, grow strong and grow tough and increase to grow and be ready for what God had ahead of them, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years and then going in and obliterating the Canaanites, which they failed to do, incidentally, which will bring us to our next session. So what is the takeaway? I've given you a historical lesson in all of this. What is the takeaway for you? And what is the takeaway for me in this session? Keep this in mind. God's love with ferocity. God's love at time, times employs ferocity to protect those whom he has marked out as his special people.
not only the Jews who are called by his name, but also by the Gentiles. And sometimes that ferocity needs to be directed at us because there are seasons in our lives when we will depart and walk in disobedience to what God would have for us to do. And if God can exhibit this type of ferocity to the seed of Abraham as an expression of love for them, so too can he do for us. It can happen either the easy way or the hard way, but it's going to happen. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this is something that the church needs to take to heart. This is something, believer, that you need to take to heart because God is really serious about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 11, we read, O Corinthians, we have, spoke op we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. You see, something that was happening in the, in the lives of these Corinthians was causing their attitudes to shift towards the apostles who had been the ones who had brought the news of the gospel and of saving faith to them. Something had begun to shift in the Corinthian believers or cause them to shift in their attitudes towards the fathers of their faith. Verse 13, now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Here it comes. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their people and they shall be my God. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty God. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If you are a true child of God, you are destined to enter his kingdom. You have been adopted as his son or daughter. The price that was paid was an infinite price, the price of, of the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, God will most certainly bring you into his kingdom through love, but sometimes that love involves ferocity and he will do it if necessary. So we can either do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way. And one more. God has ordained that it is through pressure and hardship that his people both grow and prosper. 
And we are really beginning to see the onset of this in our time. And your children and your grandchildren, if God would call them into the faith, are going to experience this exponentially more than my generation or your generation. And so the time to prepare them for that is now. But you'll see one of the truest, one of the truest and most sincere movement and growth of the church after the rapture is during the time of the tribulation when Christians will be persecuted from city to city, from country to country, when it will cost them their heads to make a valid profession, to make a profession of faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So in your life, in my life, it is through those times of hardship that God providentially brings into our life. And I think if you think back into your life, you'll, you'll see this to be true. That those, those greatest moments of growth have not come when things have been smooth and easy, but when things have been difficult. That is when God has increased us the most. So persecution, affliction, hard times, they do not diminish the people of God, they increase them. And while we may not like it, while it may not be pleasant, we must embrace them as an expression of love from God. Okay, well there's still one more cosmic answer to the question of why God would ordain and allow all this to come upon Israel, the nation that he loves. And that answer will come at the end of this series, probably in week three. Only then, and it's only then, will we really understand the profundity of that warning that comes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Mm -hmm.